Uh, please turn with me to Daniel chapter 1. Uh, we're starting a new series tonight, as Simon said. Uh, it's our Summer Preachers series, so I made sure to dress accordingly. Um, if you've not been with us over a summer before, all this means is that you're going to see some uh, maybe unfamiliar faces up here in the pulpit uh, over the next few weeks. Um, I think there are uh, five of us who are going through the book of Daniel who maybe wouldn't preach uh, regularly on uh, a Sunday. Um, but we're all trying to do the same thing that we always do here at Duke Street, which is to uh, explain God's word, to proclaim uh, who he is uh, from the scriptures. And that's just what we'll be doing tonight uh, as we look at Daniel chapter 1. Um, so as we read this, uh, we're about to go back in time uh, over two and a half thousand years. And there's a new power on the rise, uh, an ancient city has been re-energized by a powerful new ruler. Uh, it's been expanding its empire, and it arrives at the capital city of a, a fairly small kingdom, but a very important one, as we'll see. Uh, let me read Daniel chapter 1, starting at verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch or chief official, to bring some of the people of Israel both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans, the, the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink, for why should he see that you are in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who ate the king's food be who eat the king's food be observed by you, and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. At the end of the ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. 
So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Let's pray and ask for God's help as we look at his word together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the way that it tells us you have acted all the way throughout history. Lord, as we enter Daniel's world tonight, Lord, some of it seems very foreign to us. Please help us to hear your voice through your spirit. Speak to us and make us clear what you have to say to us. Lord, please give us hearts that worship you and make us people who honor the Lord Jesus uh, through tonight. In his name we pray. Amen. Uh, How would you finish this sentence? Uh, Christians are blank. Uh, You might say Christians are children of God. Um, Well, we're not going to leave it in theory. We're going to do this in practice. So strict 30 seconds. Turn to the person next to you. How would you finish this sentence? Children are go. Uh, children are, Christians are, go. We, we could have been here for a lot longer, couldn't we? Christians are, over to you. Okay, three, two, one. Uh, Let's stop there. Uh, Maybe you can share some of those uh, at the end over tea or coffee. We're we're not going to do any uh, feedback, um, but I would like a show of hands. Did anyone uh, think of the word exile? Christians are exiles. Put up your hand if you had exiles on your list. Nobody. Um, Don't worry, I wouldn't have had it on my list either. Um, It's not a word that we might use very often to describe what it means to be a Christian, but it is a word that the Bible uses to describe what it means to be a Christian. Christians are in exile. Uh, What does that mean? It means we aren't at home in this world. We're strangers. Uh, We're aliens. We don't belong here. We belong somewhere else. And it's an important word to get our heads around because it's a word that helps us to understand our experience as Christians. Why is being a Christian often so difficult? Why are the values uh, of our society uh, so different from the values that the Bible teaches and and we hold dear? Why are the messages that we uh, read on social media or uh, see on the news so proudly anti-God? Why don't we fit in here? Because to be a follower of Jesus is to be an exile. 
And life as an exile isn't easy. To be forced to live away from home, to live in a culture that looks down on you, that's constantly pressuring you to, to do things its way, well, it takes its toll. And we're left wondering, how should we live? What should we do? Should we throw in the towel and join in with the world's party? Should we go the other way entirely and withdraw from society, you know, batten down the hatches and wait for God to take us home? Maybe we could kind of go in the middle. Uh, Maybe we can just keep our faith in God to ourselves. Uh, If no one else knows we're Christians, they can't make life tough for us, can they? Hmm, That doesn't sound right either. Uh, Living as an exile in an anti-God world is hard and it's confusing. But there's good news. The book of Daniel is here to help. The book of Daniel is written to give exiles hope, to show us how to live when the world looks like it's won. We're spending our summer months in the first seven chapters of the book, and we're going to come across wonderful stories that put steel in our spines. But behind it all, above it all, we'll see a picture of an awesome God whose power and majesty mean that his, his people won't just survive exile, but thrive in this world. We're starting with Daniel 1 tonight, and the chapter breaks down into three scenes. So come with me to scene 1, the end of the line, verses 1 to 7, the end of the line. These first two verses of the book tell us how God's people originally came to be in exile in the first place. It's a tale of two kingdoms. Kingdom 1 is the kingdom of Judah, ruled by King Jehoiakim, his throne in Jerusalem. This is God's chosen king, ruling over God's kingdom on earth. Kingdom two is introduced in the same verse, the kingdom of Babylon, ruled by Nebuchadnezzar. When we hear Babylon, perhaps we think of the Hanging Gardens, one of the seven ancient wonders of the world, and it all sounds very pleasant and civilized, doesn't it? The author of Daniel wants us to think very differently about Babylon. This isn't a place of civilization or the latest example of a power on the rise. This is the latest assault in the war between God and his enemies. When we hear Babylon, we're to hear echoes of Genesis 11 and the Tower of Babel that great anti-God project that humanity embarked on in Genesis 11, a project full of pride, rebellious humanity pulling together to make a name for itself. Of course, it was a building project doomed to failure. God destroyed the puny tower and scattered the rebels across the face of the earth. But the war raged on. And as the centuries passed... Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, arrives at the gates of Jerusalem and laid siege. But this time, verse 2, Babel won. Jerusalem lies in ruins. Its king is taken captive. And it gets worse. Before he leaves Jerusalem, Nebuchadnezzar pays a visit to Jerusalem's temple and carries away the best of its silverware, plates and cups and all sorts of treasures carried back to Babylon and locked away in the temple of Nebuchadnezzar's God. 
This is Nebuchadnezzar sending a message loud and clear across the world, my God is bigger than your God. My God beat your God up. The gods of Babylon have taken the God of Israel captive. And by the end of verse 2, just the, the second verse of this book, God's enemies appear to have struck the decisive blow against God and his kingdom. And do you know what? It gets even worse from there in verses 3 to 7. Nebuchadnezzar returns to his palace in Babylon and calls in his right-hand man, Ashpenaz. What's the first order of business? Well, verses 3 to 5, Ashpenaz is ordered to find the best and brightest of the captives and enroll them in the University of Babylon to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. On the surface, it doesn't sound very threatening, does it? Seeking out promising young Jews, uh, giving them a top-tier education with a view to prestigious jobs on graduation. Sounds pretty good, actually, doesn't it? And the king's generosity doesn't stop there. Uh, See, these students don't need to survive on beans on toast like I did at university. He's going to give them food and wine from his own table. Maybe this exile is not going to be so bad for God's people after all. But if we're tempted to think like that, verses 6 and 7 bring us crashing down to reality. The Babylonians show their hand what's really going on here as we're introduced to four young men, likely teenagers at this point. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. But no sooner have we learned their names, we're told that the Babylonians lost no time in trying to erase their identities. Out with the Jewish names that honor Yahweh, now they're given Babylonian names that honor Babylonian gods. This is a brutal empire's attempt to erase the identity of God's people, to make the royal line of Judah switch sides to Babylon. And so, by the end of these first seven verses, this first scene, things look bleak. It looks like it's the end of the line. God's kingdom is a smoking wreck. His king is in chains. His people are in exile. And the royal line, remember that that line through which God had promised to establish an eternal kingdom, well, it looks like it's about to be swallowed up by the kingdom of the world. But the writer of Daniel doesn't want us to panic. He's got something to show us that nobody else can see. Despite the apparent hopelessness, everything is going according to plan. Look up at verse 2, because I missed something out. How did God's king come to be defeated? How did his temple come to be ransacked? It isn't because of Nebuchadnezzar's strength. It isn't because his gods are bigger than the God of Israel. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. It's an astonishing claim that even in the ruins of his holy city, even as his people and his king are clapped in chains and hauled into exile, as the whole world sees his defeat at the hands of his enemies, the Lord is utterly in control, orchestrating everything to bring about his plans. 
That is a big view of God. It's an enormous view of God. And it sets the tone, not just for the rest of the chapter, but for the whole book of Daniel. Before we move on, is this view of God your view of God? Do you believe that God really is as good as his promise, that he really is powerful enough to bring about his plans for this world? If that's not your view of God, my advice is always to look to the cross. Whenever God's enemies feel powerful, whenever God's kingdom seems weak, whenever his promises just seem too too big and outrageous to deliver on, look to the cross. Why look there? It's where the Son of God died. It's where you can hear the cheers of victory from his enemies as they celebrated what they thought was the the finishing blow, the killing blow to God's Son and to God's plans. Look to the cross when it seemed like God's plans had been defeated forever and then look to that empty tomb three days later as God raised his Christ from the dead, mission accomplished. With a God who can do that, it's never the end of the line. And therefore, it never makes sense to lose faith in him, to throw in the towel and join the world in its arrogance and opposition to him. A God with this sort of power is always able to keep his promises and bring his plans to completion no matter how unlikely it seems here on the ground. Well, they're good words, aren't they? Maybe we're still not sure. If that's you, come with me to our second scene as we see God's power at work behind enemy lines. Verses 8 to 16, behind enemy lines. It must have been so tempting for Daniel and his friends to give up on God and join the Babylonian cause. Imagine these Jewish teenagers arriving in Babylon, the biggest, most impressive city there had ever been, full of new smells and vibrant colors, brimming with all sorts of things that they would never, ever have seen in the streets of Jerusalem. They're walked through corridors decorated with stories of Babylonian victories, and they're promised a share in the kingdom's power and prestige. Surely, it isn't worth following God when you've got all the world has to offer at your fingertips. Well, that's not the way Daniel sees it. In verse 8, Daniel draws a line in the Babylonian sand. Look at verse 8. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Now, we don't actually know uh, what the problem was with this uh, king's food, what made it not right in Daniel's eyes. There are various theories, but none of them seem to fit together perfectly with what we see here in Daniel 1. We're just not given enough information to say for sure uh, why the wine and food were a problem for Daniel. But but we are told something very clearly. Uh, We're told that this was a God-honoring decision Daniel made this resolution to honor God. Twice in verse 8, we're told that Daniel uh, thought that the food and drink would have defiled him. 
It would have made him unclean in God's eyes. This was a God-honoring decision. And for Daniel, that was reason enough to refuse it. So he puts a plan into action. At first, he goes to the the head honcho or uh, chief eunuch and asks permission not to eat the king's food. Now, the chief official is sympathetic, but unwilling to help. It it helps us to get a flavor of the, the atmosphere under King Nebuchadnezzar, that his most important official is terrified of literally losing his head. I think the impression we're given is that uh, this man is agreeing to look the other way here, not on my watch. Uh, As long as there's no risk of his head being separated from his shoulders, Daniel and his friends can eat whatever they want. So, uh, verse 11, Daniel goes a rung down the ladder and speaks to the steward who is directly responsible for them, the one who uh, delivers their daily rations. And he suggests a, a trial period for an interesting new diet. Look at verse 12. Test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. What's going on with this food? We can understand why Jews might be sensitive about their diet when they are in a foreign land, But why were the Babylonians so bothered about what Daniel and his friends were eating? Again, there are various theories. We're not exactly sure, but one thing I've read over the last couple of weeks that I think makes a lot of sense uh, is that apparently the ideal for court officials and wise men in Babylonian culture was that they were, well, plump. Uh, So Nebuchadnezzar's extravagant diet isn't a measure of his generosity. Uh, Rather, he's feeding these boys up to transform them into the the rotund representatives of wisdom he desired. Uh, You can imagine uh, foreign dignitaries coming to Nebuchadnezzar's court and whispering to each other, Wow, have you seen his wise men? They're so fat. Well, think of a a 10-day diet of Mackey D's and bottles of Merlot, or of broccoli and tap water, which is going to help you expand your waistline, if not your wisdom. Ten days pass, and those eating the king's high-calorie diet are lined up next to Daniel and his vegetable-munching pals, and, verse 15, at the end of the ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. Despite their calorie-controlled diet, Daniel and his friends have piled on the pounds. They are the very model of Babylonian wisdom. They've become the four wide men. Credit to Henry Young for that particular pun. Again, we're being shown that God really is in control, and he can do anything. Look up to verse 9. There's that little phrase again and God gave. This time, God is giving Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief eunuchs. And although the text doesn't directly tell us, I think we're expected to see God's hand in the miraculous mass of Daniel and his friends. Here is God exercising his power deep behind enemy lines. And so, The way to thrive in a world dominated by God's enemies isn't to throw up our hands and say, well, if you can't beat them, join them. 
It's to resolve, like Daniel, to do nothing that would dishonor God. You can see from Daniel's attitude that doesn't necessarily mean aggression and assertion, sharpening our elbows. See how respectfully he speaks to the officials who are in charge of him, uh, referring to him and his friends as your servants twice in verses 12 to 13. But such a gentle, respectful attitude uh, shouldn't be mistaken for moral flexibility, a willingness to compromise. And so it's worth pausing to ask yourself, is there any point at which I'm compromising with the world right now? Perhaps it's in something you watch or in what you say, the way you spend your time or your money. Perhaps it's attitudes you carry in your heart that no one else would know about. I know the Bible says I shouldn't. I know it's not what God wants, but everyone else is doing it. Exiles aren't to live like that. Exiles are to resolve to honor God in everything we do. Exiles are to trust him that he's able to give us all we need as we do so. Scene three underlines this point and encourages weary exiles to hold the line. At scene three, hold the line, verses 17 to 21. Uh, The phrase golden generation is often thrown around in a sporting context. Uh, You can't really use that phrase in reference to English football without groaning anymore. Um, It's when a group of outrageously talented youngsters all come through for the same club or country at the same time. World-class talents who are going to make a, a huge impact on the success of the team they play for for decades to come. Daniel and his friends are the wisdom equivalent of a golden generation for the court of Babylon. Their studies completed, they're brought in before the king for inspection in verse 18. And at the top of the year, graduating with first-class honors degrees and multiple awards are four young men from Judah. Not only do they stand out from the rest of the class, they leave the king's more experienced wise men in the dust. Look at verse 20. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. They're exceptional, aren't they? Why are Daniel and his friends so successful? Is it because they worked harder at their Babylonian studies than anyone else around them? Did their diet somehow contribute? Uh, Being teetotal isn't likely to harm your ability to learn, after all. No. Daniel and his friend's success was nothing to do with their performance or their studies. It was all down to the gracious gift of God. Look at verse 17. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. God gave, God gave, God gave. Are you getting the message of Daniel chapter one? As the curtain closes on this first act of Daniel's story, we're again pointed to God, we're to gaze at him, the God who is in control of all things, who even directs the victory of his enemies. And we're to put our trust in him. While you live as an exile, desperate for his rescue, don't give up hope. 
Don't lose faith in him. He's the God who's able to give us exactly what we need to live lives of faithfulness in this anti-God world. Now, we're not to read this as a promise that faithfulness to God will mean a, a straight line to success and the guarantee of a comfortable life. Far from it. We'll see in future weeks that Daniel and his friends faced punishment, even the death sentence on more than one occasion, all because of their faithfulness to God. But we are to recognize that despite how powerful the world may seem in its rebellion against him, God is infinitely more powerful. His victory is assured. His enemies won't win. And that's the note that the author of Daniel leaves us on in verse 21. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. King Cyrus? Who's that? Well, here are two important things to know about King Cyrus. Number one, he's not Babylonian. He was a Persian. He was the king of the empire who in just a few decades would defeat Babylon and bring their empire to an end forever. Number two, he was the king who sent the Jews back to Jerusalem. Through his rule, God would bring the exile to an end. And so we leave this chapter that started with such bleakness, with hope. This is the hope for God's exiled people. Kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall. The enemies that seem so strong today are but a memory tomorrow. But there isn't a single moment when the Lord loses control. Not a single moment where his plan falters or fails. And he will bring his exiled children home. That is our hope. Chapter 1 sets the stage for the stories we're going to hear over the summer months. Stories of a, a lifetime spent in faithfulness in exile. Of course, the book is uh, well known for its big public stands for God, for its fiery furnaces and its lion's den. But the faith that makes those big public stands for God starts here, with four teenagers resolving to live lives of mostly unnoticed faithfulness to God. It starts with a view of God so big and magnificent that following him is always right. It starts with an inner resolve to do nothing that displeases him. That is how to live in exile.